Drive down any street these days, and you're likely to see campaign signs sprouting up like strange mushrooms all over the corners of intersections and roadsides. It can only mean one thing. Elections are around the corner. Psychopaths are running the country right now. You've got Biden, Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mark Kelly. These people don't care what's actually happening to you. It's a DC gang! It's time for a showdown. Trust is the cornerstone of our republic. Trust that our community is safe. Trust that our jobs won't be shipped overseas. Trust that your vote counts. It's nearly impossible to bring both parties together in Washington today. But when it came to delivering critical infrastructure upgrades for Arizona, that's exactly what I did. Here on The Gaggle, we're picking through the notable races and candidates you should pay attention to. And we continue our breakdown today with a look at who's running for Congress from Arizona. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we dig deeper into our state's political stories with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on Arizona's political news. I'm Ron Hansen, a national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. This is the third and final installment of our primary primers ahead of early voting. Today, we're talking to a Republican and a Democrat to help make sense of the GOP U.S. Senate primary and several House primaries. Here to break down the Republican side in our studio is Lorna Romero, owner of Elevate Strategies, a communications and public affairs firm based right here in Phoenix. Notably, Lorna was also the communications director for the 2016 John McCain for U.S. Senate campaign, where she served as the senator's spokeswoman and developed targeted messaging for the campaign. Lorna, welcome to The Gaggle. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the U.S. Senate race. Um, this race has been a relative yawner for a long time now. There was speculation about Governor Doug Ducey getting into that race. Former President Donald Trump seemed to block that from happening. For nearly a year, Trump seemed to be giving Attorney General Mark Burnovich every opportunity he could to bring criminal charges against people for the 2020 election which the former president falsely maintains was stolen. That's all behind us, and Trump has now endorsed Blake Masters, a former executive for billionaire Peter Thiel, who's put more than $10 million into supporting Masters. So first, does anyone have a clear advantage as we approach early voting in this race? You know, you just gave a recap of a bunch of things that I've even already forgotten because I feel like so much has happened in the past year since people launched their campaigns for this race. I would say prior to Trump's endorsement, I think it was pretty much anyone's game, at least in, in the top three. Berno probably at a slight disadvantage given kind of the negative commentary he's been receiving from former President Trump for the past year to nine months about the stop the steal stolen election, whatever we want to call it these days, what he's alleging. I think Masters has the upper hand right now. And the only reason why I say that is, and mind you, I haven't seen any updated polling since the Trump endorsement, but I'm basing that based off of how Lehman is responding to him because you've seen the attacks go to a different level since that endorsement has come out because now Lehman's trying to discredit Masters and show that he's the true kind of Trump-esque candidate for these Republican primary voters. And then also Masters has the advantage of having, as you said, a well-funded super PAC behind him 
and they're the ones doing the attacks against Lehman. It's a different dynamic when an IE or super PACs doing the attacks versus the candidate themselves. Because now Lehman doing the attacks on Masters, all of that negativity is going on him if it backfires. So I think Masters has the upper hand, but it's one of those things where right now all of these candidates are just so focused on a primary race and have forgotten that immediately after they have a short window to pivot for a general election, which a lot of their messaging right now is not necessarily going to resonate with independent voters or even moderate Republicans in general. So any thoughts on how much influence the Trump endorsement has with Arizona Republican primary voters in 2022? I think it's an interesting dynamic because I think it depends on each race specifically, and it, it depends on the type of candidates. So in this U.S. Senate race, you haven't had anybody really try to come down the center lane, you know, moderate Republicans. Nobody's speaking to those voters, which those voters still exist. I know they've probably been very quiet for the past year and a half, but they still will turn up to vote. So I think when you look at recent polling and you see the number of undecideds, I make the argument in that race, a number of the undecideds are are moderates. So I don't know if Masters really does pull new voters or new supporters out of that undecided category. Maybe he takes some of the Jim Lehman supporters or people who were potentially thinking about voting for Brnovich, but then saw Trump's attacks against him. So it's hard to tell. Oftentimes, candidates want the Trump endorsement because one, he's not going to attack you, right? (laughs) If he's got your back, you don't have to deal with the backlash of him saying something negative about you. And two, they typically want it because it helps with fundraising or some earned media. In Master's case, he's already well-funded and he's already been having his name out there for the past year or so. I would argue that Trump's endorsement's much more impactful in a race like Secretary of State or AG that's been a little bit under the radar versus the U.S. Senate race where people have been on TV for almost a year now. You alluded to the polling in this race. There are, of course, a, a very significant number of undecided voters. What does it say about these candidates that we are this close to the window for early voting and we have that many undecideds, whatever the, the correct number is at this moment? Does it say the voters are just not thrilled with their choices? Are these candidates just so close ideologically or in style? Or is there something else that explains that? I think there's multiple factors here. But one, I would say I think voters are tired right now. This is our third election cycle that we've had U.S. Senate race on the ballot in Arizona. And it seems like the election cycle has not ended. I mean, 2020 never really ended when you think about it. We keep talking about that election cycle, right? And people were very early on to start campaigning for 2022. I've had friends and even my husband say, is there an election coming up a year ago? Because they were so confused why there were already U.S. Senate ads running. So I think there's a little bit of voter disengagement. I think people just wanted a break from it. Two, I think they're all trying to get the same voters, right? And it's a numbers game, right? Anytime you have a contested primary, especially the number of candidates that you have in U.S. Senate race or even some of these other statewides where there's four or five, you really have to find out who are your voters. And it just comes up to who we're going to get to show up on election day or mail in their early ballot. I would argue that these Republican primary candidates for the U.S. Senate race are trying to go after the same voters, which don't make up, obviously, every single Republican that's going to turn out. That's why you have so many undecideds, because you have people who are closely aligned to the middle that don't feel like anyone's actually trying to get their vote right now. And I think that's a mistake for some of these candidates, especially someone like Mark Burnovich. You didn't get Trump's endorsement. If I were him, I would be focusing on those undecideds between now and Election Day. Okay, so you just brought up Mark Burnovich. In a field of political newcomers, Burnovich is a two-time statewide incumbent 
Why isn't he already dominating this race? This is where money has a factor. Brnovich, yes, had the advantage of name ID going into this attorney general for two terms, et cetera, has had some kind of high-profile earned media opportunities throughout his tenure as attorney general. So you would think on paper, he's a shoe and everybody you know, should be rallying around him. He got stuck in a pretty sticky situation with everything that happened with the election, right? He was one of the first Arizona elected officials to come out publicly and say on national television, there was no fraud in Arizona's election system. Arizona did the right thing. You know, like Trump lost the race. He said that early on. And then his messaging shifted. And then 2020 still has continued about litigating that election cycle. And him being the attorney general of the state can't ignore that. Uh, you have Masters and Layman and these other candidates that aren't closely tied to this situation in a professional way like Brnovich is, where they can just say what they want and kind of move on because at the end of the day, it's not going to impact their day job like it does for him. That's impacted him a lot differently than the others. Plus, he doesn't have the money behind him. Jim Layman is... He's wealthy, independently wealthy. You have Peter Thiel backing Blake Masters. Bruno just doesn't have that war chest. And at the end of the day, if you're getting negative attention from Trump and you're getting blasted in the media or by elements of the far right wing and you don't have the resources to push back against it, you find yourself in a situation like Bruno right now. Jim Lehman, the former executive with Depcom Power, a solar company, poured millions into trying to cast himself as the Trumpiest candidate in this race and didn't get the president's backing ultimately. Is he a spoiler at this point, or is this properly seen as a three-way race, including I, him? I think it's properly still seen as a three-way race. And I mean, at this point, he spent so much money and you're so close to the primary, there's no reason for him to, to drop out now. I would understand if the polls were showing that Masters was so far in the lead, or if there was a legit front runner, then maybe back out. But there's really no reason for him. And at this point, a lot of it comes down to ego, too. Like, He's probably trying to see how much damage he can do to Masters between now and primary election day to see if he can squeak it out. But, I mean, there's really no point for him to drop out at this point. Blake Masters is the third person in that three-person field, if we think of it that way. He is now seen as at least the one to watch in this race. Any thoughts on how well-suited he is given his propensity for uh, being out there on social media or taking chances uh, against the conventional political playbook. You know, and I say this for all Republicans running for office right now, there's such a great opportunity to just focus on the disaster that's happening in Washington, D.C. I mean, the Biden administration is just handing so many good talking points on the silver platter that have nothing to do with these fringe super controversial issues. It has purely to do with the economy and cost of living, things that voters are really caring about right now that's impacting everybody. And so for masters, what I would say is you got the Trump endorsement. You don't you, you don't need to be talking about those issues anymore. You, you got those voters basically unlocked. Focus on the key issues because, again, you have to shift to a general election pretty soon. And those aren't going to be the talking points, critical race theory, some of these, you know, culture war type issues. That's not what it's going to get you across the finish line and beat Mark Kelly, who's a very well-funded candidate. So if I were Masters, I would just focus on the Biden administration disaster, the economy, the economy, the economy, and then just let the rest of the stuff kind of fall by the wayside. Okay. So you mentioned a shift. Let's do one of our own. Let's talk about some of these House Republican primaries. We'll start with the race in North Central Phoenix and the Northeast Valley. That features incumbent Representative David Schweikert who just picked up Trump's endorsement against car warranty executive Elijah Norton and gym club owner Josh Barnett. 
Barnett has tried to carve out the MAGA vote for himself, but didn't get the endorsement. Norton has pitched himself as a pro-business conservative who is a Trump supporter without the ethics baggage that Schweikert has. As a reminder, the House in 2020 found Schweikert broke 11 ethics rules and fined him $50,000 for misspending in his office and campaign. The Federal Election Commission also fined Schweikert $125,000 over that matter. Schweikert, meanwhile, is a six-term incumbent who is well-positioned to head a subcommittee within the tax-writing House Ways and Means Committee and is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Schweikert has little money, and Norton has plenty of it, but isn't especially well-known. Given all that, how do you see this primary unfolding? You know, we've been saying for the past few election cycles, as this you know ethics investigation has been looming over Schweikert, that is this the year that Schweikert potentially loses? Is this you know whether it was going to be in the primary or in the general? I think now that all that's kind of passed him, it's not really an issue that's hanging over him as much as it was in previous election cycles. But now you have Elijah Norton, like you said, very well funded, self funded, and he's independently wealthy. And then Josh Barnett, who I don't think is even part of the equation right now, he didn't get the Trump endorsement and he has no money. So in a congressional race, if you have no name ID and you're not getting the high profile endorsement, you need money to be able to back that up. So it's really a competitive race between Schweiker and potentially Norton because of the financial advantage. I think Schweiker's going to be fine at the end of the day. He's well known in that district and his name ID seems pretty high. But, you know, you, you never know. Between now and Election Day, if Norton drops even more cash, goes on TV even more than he has, then potentially that could threaten Schweikert. But again, Schweikert got the Trump endorsement. I think he's going to be fine. And he's a great example of somebody who's able to get a Trump endorsement without really being a very Trumpy Republican, uh, which is a shocker. Maybe some folks can take notes from that because he hasn't gone out on a limb like some of the other Republicans have. But I think he's going to be OK with this one. What role, if any, does Barnett play in this race? Is he a spoiler that effectively blocks someone like Norton from being able to scrape up every vote he would need to knock off an incumbent? Potentially, but I really don't think he's going to be that much of a factor. I think outside of his probably Twitter presence, probably very few people in the district know who he is. Let's move to the GOP primary for the Northeastern Arizona district that's currently represented by Democrat Tom O'Halloran. This district now includes the Prescott Valley, which moves it noticeably to the right. By some accounts, O'Halloran is the most endangered Democrat in the House. There are a lot of people running for the Republicans. State Representative Walt Blackman is in the race, along with Tucson businessman Eli Crane, Ron Watkins, the administrator of an online chat site that has been host to the QAnon conspiracy theories, is running. So are businessmen Andy Yates and Mark Deluzio. What should people know about the field in this race? Again, this is a field similar to what we've been talking about in the U.S. Senate race, where no one's really trying to run in the middle necessarily. Um, and I think, and yes, O'Halloran is vulnerable. He's always been kind of vulnerable, regardless of you know, what the previous district lines. Um, and so I think this is a situation where obviously Democrats are not excited about having to save a seat versus trying to pick up more. I think they were hoping they would be in that situation. But even though the lines are different, regardless of who comes out of that primary, I don't know if they're going to be able to take out O'Halloran with that type of messaging. Again, it comes down to you can run a primary race all you want and you can focus on the more of the Trump voters, but you still got to win a general, right? Um, so unless O'Halloran, who O'Halloran has always been considered a moderate Democrat since he's been a Democrat. I mean, he's a former Republican, but he's not considered like the AOCs of, of the party. 
uh, I think he will end up being okay. But again, I think any of those candidates, I mean, you mentioned folks like, you know, Walt Backman, who's been a very conservative legislator down at, you know, very conservative member of the legislature, Ron Watkins, part of, you know, the Q conspiracy. I mean, that's not really middle of the road Republicans that I think could actually take out O'Halloran. Does anybody have the advantage in the Republican primary at this point in that race? That's a good question. I would guess right now probably Walt Blackman because of the fact that he has been on ballots for a number of those individuals who are in that district. And he's been able to get his name out. That's a little bit more high profile. Obviously, maybe people know who Ron is because of the Q conspiracy, but I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing for him. But my guess would be that Walt Blackman probably has the advantage in that primary. Crane seems to have the backing of some Republican establishment types. If he's not the nominee, does that change the way this race looks heading into the fall in a dramatic way? Potentially, because then folks could shift their support to O'Halloran and what have you. I think the problem with Eli Crane is, you know, that's always an interesting district, right? You have Northeast Arizona, and then it takes part of Southern Arizona. As you know, the different regions of the state, Southern Arizona is nothing like Northeastern Arizona. So I think that also plays a factor in it, too, with some of these voters as well. Like, they don't feel like that person would necessarily be representing them, et cetera. But I think with Eli, if he's not successful in the primary, then maybe some of those folks that were backing him will just pull back O'Halloran. Let's talk for a moment about the race for the Tempe-based district where Democratic Representative Greg Stanton is running for uh, another term. Republicans have several candidates in this race. Tanya Wheelis is uh, the presumed frontrunner going against Kelly Cooper, a former Green Party voter who has gotten some buzz lately claiming endorsements from the Gun Owners of America and Republican City Councilman Sal DeCicio and others in that race. Is this a real race in the primary? And, and how do any of the Republicans in this affect the prospects for beating Stanton in the fall? I do think it's a real primary, even though folks in the political so circles know Tanya Wheelis and from her previous roles and the fact that she was, you know, the state director for Martha McSally, et cetera. She's not necessarily well known by voters in the district. I do think she probably has the upper hand in that primary. But again, when you have so many people in a primary, Somebody could be a spoiler, right? I do think, though, that if it's not Tanya, if Tanya is not the one that comes out of that primary, I don't know how seriously Republicans take that seat and trying to take out Stanton. I'm confident that if Tanya were to win, then you would see a lot of outside spending and a lot of outside groups come into support because Stanton is vulnerable in that new district. If it's not Tanya, I'm not sure that Calvary will necessarily come in. There's one more House primary I want to discuss. That's the one for the open seat in southeastern Arizona, currently held by retiring Democratic Representative Ann Kirkpatrick. There are a lot of Republicans in this race as well, but Juan Siscomani, a senior advisor for the Ducey administration on the Arizona-Mexico Commission, is widely viewed as the front runner in that. One of the people in the race is Brandon Martin, the 2020 Republican nominee and someone who offers himself as a more conservative option, it seems. Um, this district is a lot more competitive for Republicans now than uh, the one that Kirkpatrick just won in 2020. But do Republicans need to nominate someone like Siskamani to be able to really flip this seat in November? Yes. And that's a quick, easy answer. A hundred percent. If they want to be able to take that seat. And, and yes, with the new district lines, it looks really good for a Republican down there, but it has to be the right Republican. You're still talking about Southern Arizona, Pima County area. I think Juan has done a really good job 
he's a, he's a conservative, you know, candidate. He is. But he has been focused on the messaging that really resonates with that district and with that area, not focused on, like we were talking about earlier, culture wars and this, that, and the other. Like He is really looking at the Biden administration talking about the economy, talking about the issues that folks are talking about when they're sitting at their dining room table. So, yeah, I think he's the type of candidate that Republicans actually need, not just in that district to be successful to take out a potential Democrat seat, but he's probably running the type of race that a number of Republicans that are running for statewide office should be taking some notes from. Okay. So last question, if I've detected a thread to all your answers, it seems to be that Republicans need to be right, but not too far to the right. What is your sense of the Republican primary electorate right now on the eve of early voting? Do you think that they are poised to be pragmatic in their decisions or are they going to shoot the moon and and try and get the one who is the most emphatic Trump supporters, the uh, farthest right, what do you think is going to carry the day? I'm still optimistic about the party and the voters that will show up on election day or participate in mail-in ballots like we've had for the past almost 30 years in Arizona successfully, just plugging that in. Um, I think there's Republicans who are angry, that are fired up, and that there's going to be a lot of of energy going into this election cycle because people are upset with the direction of the country. I think that uh, the majority of voters are going to be more upset about the current status of their financial situation, their cost of living versus the rest of these other peripheral issues. That's going to be the guiding factor in all of this and the deciding factor. So I don't think it's going to be a shoot for the moon. I do think there will be a number of Republicans that get support from folks who maybe in the past voted for a, a moderate Democrat or a truly independent voter. I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. But I don't think it's going to be a strong shift to I'm only voting for the Trump supporter, the person who believes that the 2020 election was stolen, et cetera. I don't think that's going to be top of mind for voters. It's going to be who's going to make sure that I can continue to provide for my family and have the government off my back. You know, so I think that's going to be the leading issue for Republicans. But again, regardless of what happens in the primary, whatever Republican comes out, they still need to focus on a general. And so that's what I'm not seeing right now is people running dual races right now. Everyone's just so focused on a primary, so focused on Trump not realizing that their ads with Trump's face, their mail pieces with Trump's face, their digital ads with Trump's face, they're all being seen by general election voters. And I'm not sure it's necessarily going to translate well for them in November. Okay, well, stay tuned. We'll get to November in due course. Lorna, thank you for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? I am at Lorna Romero. Hey, producer Kaylee Monahan here. We're just taking a short break. If you're enjoying this episode of The Gaggle, consider supporting us by subscribing to this podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, which allows us to bring you more conversations like this one. As always, thanks for listening. And now back to the episode. Now let's turn to Eric Chalmers to analyze a couple of the Democratic primaries worth watching. Eric is a vice president of campaigns and outreach for the consulting firm of Strategies 360, and he's a veteran of the Greg Santon congressional campaign, and he joins us remotely. Eric, welcome to The Gaggle. Ron, thanks for having me. So before we get to the House primaries, I want to get a Democrat's perspective on the Republican primary in the Senate race. 
How does that race change, if at all, based on who the GOP nominee is? Well, I think we saw last cycle and now going into this cycle that Senator Mark Kelly's fundraising capabilities and his story as an astronaut, as a fighter pilot, I think make him a very, very strong candidate and certainly his record in the Senate, both of staying focused on the issues close to Arizonans and what they care about, I think makes him strong, a strong, ready opponent uh, for whoever comes out of that primary. I don't think it necessarily is going to change the Kelly calculus, given the playbook that you know they've shown so far and, and both their strength of fundraising and message. We've got a lot of Republican races uh, that we care about on the primary side, not so much on the Democratic ledger. Let's talk about one of the Democratic races, though. It's the race for the district that includes the Northeast Valley and North Central Phoenix. That seat is currently held by Republican David Schweikert, who we talked about earlier. Democrats have Jevin Mm -hmm. Hodge and Adam Metzendorf running in this race. Tell me about these men. Yeah, I'll add the caveat. I don't know Adam as well as I know Jevin, and I've worked with Jevin for multiple years. I'll say to Adam, he he seems hard worker, good guy. I know he comes out of a a business background, uh, of course, worked for the Suns for a little while. I think he's he's worked hard. He's raised a decent amount of money. I think about 170,000 based on the last report. But this doesn't seem to be gaining traction amongst Democratic primary supporters that you'd want to see for a candidate lining themselves up to win a primary. Whereas, you know, Jevin, he's a known quantity amongst the Democratic Party, and certainly has shown himself to be a, I would call it a ferocious campaigner. Um, he's raised almost $800,000, I think, on based on the last report. And, and everything I hear is that he's continuing to keep up that pace probably be at a million if he hasn't crossed that already. He certainly has support from a lot of the national groups that look to, especially being on the the new Democratic coalition watch list, which kind of shows that that's really the DC institutional support, the Bold Pack, Black Caucus Pack. So he's really gained a lot of that support as well as just a lot of the local party leadership. So he seems to have, from my perspective, the, the momentum in that race. And I would say it's too bad to just a, a side note and, and just have to give another compliments to Hural. I think even if, if Hural Tipperney was running in this district in uh, 2020, I think she could win it. You know, we'll see once we get to the general, whether you know, the midterm headwinds make it difficult for a Democrat to win this district, but certainly uh, at least for the primary, looking like he's the clear front runner. Is there an issue that separates these men or is this really about Jevin having a higher name ID and just a, a greater connection perhaps to the community? I would say it's definitely more the latter. When it comes in these to these primaries, I think both are running on a standard, I would say, you know, democratic platform. I don't think either of them have really separated themselves on an issues base, but I think it's just who's starting with the higher name and who's really earning the support of, of a lot of both the local and national leaders and organizations. Well, if Hodge and Metzendorf are political newcomers, the House race in Tucson for the seat currently held by Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick is a battle between two pros. Former state Senator Kirsten Engel is running against State Representative Daniel Hernandez. She's an environmental lawyer He's perhaps best known for helping render aid to Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords moments after she was shot in the head in 2011. What more should people know about these two candidates? Both are strong state legislators. This is a 
going to be a tough choice for Democrats because both are certainly very qualified. State legislators have great records, have both worked hard, have won races before. It's a competitive race and it's tough when you've got two qualified people like this. A couple of things people should be aware of looking at this race is that Kirsten Engel, uh, Representative Engel, her legislative district that she's represented before running for Congress, that is 100% inside this new congressional district. So I think there's that factor cannot be underscored that she certainly has represented a lot of this area before. Certainly, there's a history of women doing well in this district. She's a U of A professor. So she's got a lot of, I would say, local endorsements, institutional support from the local Tucson community. And she does have a slight cash on hand advantage. So there's some factors going for her. But I think looking at Daniel, he came into the race, I think about two months later than Representative Engel did. And he, in that time, is almost caught up on the cash on hand battle, he's certainly earned the support of a lot of the national orgs, you know, that we referenced previously with Jevin, but that even recently he got, I think the mom's demand action distinction. He's got multiple endorsements from the quality pack from mold from bold pack, I believe too. And many of the folks that are, you know, you would look to as the fundraisers on a national level are coming in for him. So it's going to be an interesting contrast between the two of them, both from Engel's local support and then Hernandez's national support and his fundraising chops that he's shown. Um, he also, I think, recently just put out a poll that showed him up 16% in the race. And I think, to your point, Ron, he's well known for both his connection with Gabrielle Giffords and his work in saving her life, his efforts in saving her life, and how that just is factored in with him having better name ID to start. Um, and that he, and I know this, you know, he's working very, very hard and it's not taking that for granted. This is a new district, and, and this is a relatively difficult year, it seems, for Democrats just environmentally on this. We've also had some new issues sort of thrust into the equation of late, from abortion rights to gun rights, the January 6th riot investigation. They've all been in the news of late. These are things that can stir Democratic passions. Does any of this help to push this race more to the liking of anybody in this race? Does it shape the electorate in any meaningful way? That's a really good question. I think, one, if we're looking just straight ahead to the general in November, certainly it gives progressives, Democrats, especially with the Roe v. Wade impending decision, more motivation to turn out and potentially you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say it could reverse what has been a, you know, I think what we both know a decades old trend where the party in power tends to do worse in midterms, but it could be helpful. I think in this primary, particularly, you know, it's, it's hard to tell because I think both of them have been very clear on where they stand on the issue of abortion access and abortion rights. And there's really no, you know, I would say daylight between them on that. You reference the general election. Let's go there fully for a moment. The winner here will face the GOP nominee that could include Juan Siscomani or Brandon Martin or someone else. Does the Democratic choice change their prospects for holding this more competitive seat in what many expect is going to be a tough year anyway for Democrats? It cuts two ways. I think certainly 
Daniel being both Latino and openly gay candidate certainly gives him a lot of appeal to Democratic base and to the electorate in Tucson. But as I also mentioned earlier, Representative Engel, women have you know historically done better uh, in this district, and it still has a lot of uh, the old congressional district in it. So I think both have factors going for them. I think there's history that says you know Engel could be a very strong in, in a general, but I think Daniel's also got a lot of characteristics that give him a really good shot. Very good. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on The Gaggle. Where can people find you on Twitter? I am on Twitter at Eric, E-R-I-C, Chalms, C-H-A-L-M-S. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. We'll continue our coverage of Arizona's midterms over the next several weeks. If you missed it, Be sure to check out the past two episodes where we looked at the state legislative races and the gubernatorial races and how they could affect Arizona's future. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can follow her on Twitter at Kaylee, K-A-E-L-Y, Monahan, M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Do you have questions about Arizona's politics? Maybe there's an issue on your mind as we head into the election season. Well, we want to hear from you. You can now send us a note to thegaggle at ArizonaRepublic.com. That's one word all spelled out. Or leave us a message at 602-444-0804. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.